Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. This Australian Investors Podcast episode features Gabe Bernard of Viceroy Research. For years, Viceroy Research remained anonymous despite scores of financial journalists, hedge fund managers, analysts and company executives trying to discover their true identity. Gabe is one of the group's formerly anonymous investment analysts working alongside Aiden and Fraser to uncover shares of companies which are suitable for short selling. In this enlightening discussion, Gabe describes how Viceroy's investment and research processes work in great detail. 
how Viceroy was unmasked, and the accounting tricks and traps that make for some of the best short-selling targets. I trust you'll enjoy this conversation with Gabe Bernard of Viceroy Research. Gabe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know, Gabe is part of a short-selling, I suppose you could call it outfit? Yeah, outfit. Outfit works. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you've, I suppose, shot to fame in the last few years. Uh, your research has gone across international lines and um, caught wind over in different parts of the world. We'll get to later on the show. Definitely. But uh, I think this is your first show, uh, first podcast recording, right? Interview? Yeah, this is my first podcast. So going to get Viceroy on the map and uh, hope there's <laughs> a few more to come. Yeah, cool. I've been eagerly awaiting this because, one, this is the first show you've done. Mm-hmm. But two, for those in the investing community and those who have seen or, or followed along with your work from a distance, um, have always been eager to find out more about who's responsible, who's behind this, who's producing this research. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to bring this to the market, if you like, yep. and um, to learn more about everything that's gone on in the past, say, five years, because it's a hell of a story. We've met before, yep. and uh, you shared some great stories with me, so I'm just hoping we can flesh some of those out today. Yep. Um, what we normally do is we start with you and just go back to where it all started for you, your, your, yep, your journey towards finance. Yes, exactly. So okay. why don't you just tell us about that, your family life, and how you got started in finance? Sure. So I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do after high school. And I think my mom pointed out to me, he's like, oh, there's these professional services firms, uh, big four, Mm -hmm. and a couple of, you know, boutique ones that take in cadets, which is also, I guess, a convent, I guess. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you study uh, part-time, work full-time in professional services for the first two years, and then you study full-time and work if you want, I guess, for the the remainder of your course. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was kind of weighing up between like commerce and engineering. Uh, and I didn't have a preference, but I applied for these jobs and thought like, okay, if I get this job, like I'll do business, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do commerce. Um, and I got a cadetship with Ferry Hodgson. So I started there 18, fresh out of high school. And yeah, it just kind of went from there. And working in insolvency, I guess, is sort of, so it's like the end goal is to be like a, an auditor or like that's the yeah, title no, you come it, out with? It was mostly just, I mean, I had to study accounting. Okay. Um, and there are, there are CA, well, they were a CA firm that just got bought out by KPMG. Okay. Um, but the, the idea was not auditing or tax. It was more, um, you know, corporate recoveries, like liquidations, mm-hmm. administrations, and also just like general debt advisory, um, turnover advisory, anyone that's sort of struggling trying to get them back on track. Mm-hmm. So it broadened up this spectrum of all these different types of businesses. And I think like on my first day, um, you know, there was a potential that I would have had to go out and like give redundancies letter, letters out to like truck drivers or something. Wow. So I was terrified. You're like 18, 19. I was 18, yeah. Oh, and I thought, well, this is like a little bit potentially, you know, I don't actually know how I could do this respectfully. I had no idea what I was doing at inception. I hadn't even done accounting in high school. Um, but fortunately I got pulled off that, did the training, so like how to talk with creditors and stuff, because it's, it's kind of soul crushing working in a solvency because most of the time, especially for the first two years, all you do is like tell people that they've lost their money. Mm-hmm. You're on the phones all the time. Um, you're handling claims uh, and a lot of them were like mom and dads. And there's even businesses that kind of went through that just had like a bad run of luck. You know, it wasn't really, they weren't fraudulent. Mm. It was just bureaucracy. Even. Mm. So... I 
worked in insolvency for a few years and it's kind of ironic that mm, I went from, you know, sort of the back end of looking at how like some companies were definitely fraudulent. I mean, that's with all insolvency and how that plays out, you know, looking back uh, to now trying to find out, like picking these companies before this event happens mm. is it's is really challenging especially when you don't have all that information you know i had management accounts for example for sure. areas, and i could review them all going back whatever but when you're limited to just public accounts you actually have to do a lot of the digging yourself in terms of actually getting like primary empirical data to mm. substantiate any claim you're making presumably though like that's if you are going to move into what you ultimately did that's great exposure right it was yeah it was yeah it was because i i think it brings some perspective to what we do as well Mm -hmm. because there's this huge sort of backlash against short sellers it's like oh you're you know you're putting people out of business you're ruining their lives um people obviously lose their jobs um but I guess, at least in my experience, it was sort of better to rip off the band-aid earlier rather than sort of become this massive infectious wound, right? It, yeah, I, I don't think people sort of get that. We, we kind of know that this will happen mm-hmm. eventually, um, but it doesn't really phase us anymore. Okay. So before we get to more of the nitty-gritty stuff, mm-hmm. why don't you take us through the period of you've just left high school, Yep. Uh, this, this the further study that you did and, and what you were working on on the side and how that came to be. Sure. So the first two years I was basically just working at Farrier's. Um, and it was everything from like bookshops to cafes to bars. Um, I think there was even a strip club thrown in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, and then I sort of wound up those two years working full-time, studying part-time. I, I took an internship. Uh, at a fund only because they were sort of mildly interested that I worked in insolvency and they had a a bit of a short book. Mm -hmm. Um, So I helped them out with some stuff, just, you know, digging on certain companies. Uh, I pitched them a couple of short reports. These were international, so no sort of conflict with what I was doing at Farriers. It was just sort of the idea generation on sort of what we can expect, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, six months prior to a collapse. So when I came back and I, and I knew how difficult it was for these funds to get data in Australia, I started when I was in uh, uni just, you know, reaching out to funds and saying, look, you might have a good thesis in Australia. Um, our market's really different. Everyone thought it was very archaic. <laughs> I mean, we still had like JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Normans where in the US, Best Buy was collapsing. Mm. Um, this is back in like 2014, 15. Yeah. And I essentially just pitched that I would do the due diligence support for an hourly rate. So then we started just like someone would send us a thesis and I would just do, you know, even if it was sitting outside shops mm-hmm. or, you know, talking to customers, setting up like Survey Monkeys, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. 
um, and got them like an underground perspective of what was happening in these businesses so that they could better, you know, validate. Well, it was essentially thesis validation. Yes. Um, they wanted to know that they were right. And that's where I started working with Aiden because he was studying at uh, RMIT with me at the time. And he was in engineering. Hmm. And there were a couple of like mining companies that came away. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was so far over my head with, in terms of like uh, geographical reports and, yeah. you know, mining feasibility. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked him, I was like, hey, do you want to help out with some of this more like mathy engineering related stuff? I'm sure you might have fun with it. And we had known each other since primary school. So we went to, we were friends since we were eight, I think. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it, it kind of took off from there. And then we started doing some of this work collaboratively. And I think once we started to see that some of our work had, had played out and that we were like very correct in our thesis, it was that time that we figured it actually might be better off that we do the work ourselves and develop our own thesis, um, even as a proof of concept, so that we can sort of move into this industry. Because that was the end goal, mm-hmm. that, right? When we started doing this, it was like, I want to work in funds management. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of didn't play out that way, obviously, <laughs> because once Viceroy kicked off and once we met Fraser, and it was during that time where we were doing some, some work for people and they asked us to look into, um, I think it was TFS. Quintus. Quintus, yeah. Um, I was speaking to someone and like going through a thesis with them that we sort of semi come up with and they said, Oh, I know another guy that's looking into the same company as you. Hmm. And they patched in Fraser on that call. And I think me and Fraser spoke for five hours Hmm. and I was like, yeah, this guy just doesn't stop talking, but you know, (laughs) he's pretty interesting. So I'll give him the time of the day. And then he accidentally sent me an email from his anonymous outfit at the time, Zatara, and kind of said, oh, shit, wasn't meant to tell you, tell you what it was. And I think after Zatara kind of, kind of backfired, we just, kind of, we just started working together as Viceroy. And he just, he, we, we sort of just started talking. He's like, hey, look, we have some great ideas. Um, why don't we just start Viceroy? Mm. And he said, cool. And then that's how we started. So it was really strange because we're very like non-traditional backgrounds. I mean, Fraser's backgrounds in social services. Yeah. Um, Ident engineering, I'm sort of finance-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, no, none of us have had any funds experience before. It was just like we were willing to do, we're willing to spend one month on an idea, whereas most funds have are rolling between like, you know, at least 10, 15 ideas per person. Yeah. So the depth that we can cover uh, was much greater. And I think that's that was our, always our value add. Yeah. So just circling back to when you started things and you started approaching these funds, mm-hmm. were they pretty receptive to have, like, were they entertain the idea that they might have someone like you go out and validate their thesis? Uh, it happens a lot, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, in the US, it was really easy because uh, there's a lot of PI work. Yeah. That is purely like, I think the hedge fund industry, like definitely, you know, 
keeps up the standard with the cost of PIs over there. But um, yeah, in Australia, it was, I don't think that there's many people that actually do that still. I, I don't think there's anyone that does sort of this due diligence support. Hmm. And we're not PIs, obviously, but you know, it's easy enough to sit outside a shop and count people going in and out mm. on a weekday. And like, if it was retail, like find out how often they're having sales and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll get to that in a, a moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you'll have some stories for us there. Yeah. Uh, so you met Fraser uh-huh. and he's not based in Australia, right? No, he's in London. Yeah. Right. So you're kind of all over well, the world. But he's, he's 50% London, 50% New York. Right. Yeah. Okay. I think, for context and for some listeners who may not have a full appreciation for what you do, maybe you can just give us this, this short selling 101, what it is and how mm-hmm. it differs from traditional investing. So short selling is very similar to long investing, um, but instead of betting on the stock price appreciating, you're, basing, you're, you're betting on the stock price depreciating. And... It's like borrowing money from a bank. So if I borrow a share from you, mm-hmm. uh, I would sell that share immediately and let's say it was worth $100. And I'm betting on that share value decreasing. Mm-hmm. So if it decreases to $50, I'd buy it back on the market and return you your share. So I'm not actually borrowing like a nominal amount of money. I'm borrowing nominal amount of shares. Yeah. And then I pay interest on those shares while, to you while you loan them to me, mm-hmm. similar to a bank. So from my perspective, lending you the share makes sense because I've got, I was going to hold it anyway. Sure. But I might get some sort of interest. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, one other little question. Why is it called Viceroy? Uh, okay, so we were looking... This is really difficult to come up with a name, actually. But we were looking at um, you know, instances of big bubbles. Mm-hmm. And I think the most prominent example or one of the earliest documented examples um, was the tulip bubble in the Netherlands and it, it was essentially the Ottomans bought tulips to the Netherlands and they started trading the bulbs as like a commodity almost so the stock the price of a of a bulb would be somewhere in the region of the price of a house <laughs> or someone's annual income and I think once they figured out that you can just grow these things in mass um, the prices of tulip bulbs collapsed and the most expensive type of tulip or amongst the most expensive was the viceroy and it had a disease that made the um, petals stripy so if you actually see our logo that yeah the, the petals have a stripe on it so they don't exist anymore huh. so that was the name okay that's the genesis of the name although actually i spoke to um i spoke to uh, joe at jolly swagman podcast and he told me that like my facts on the Dutch tulip bubble were totally wrong. So <laughs> I might actually have uh, to take a lesson from him on that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it's, it's a good story anyway, right? That's what, yeah. that's what this is all about. Exactly. <laughs> so um, I suppose one of the, the reports that really put you guys on the map was the report about Steinhoff International, which is a South African company, mm-hmm. uh, furniture retailer as far as I know, sold all around the world. One of the biggest companies in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Can you take us through your process, starting from due diligence right through to, I suppose, today? What happened? Sure. Yeah, I think it would just be a fascinating story. Um, 
So from due diligence, I think it came up on the map when uh, Steinhoff had proposed to buy Mattress Firm in the US. And that stuck out to Fraser because I hadn't been to the US that much at the time. Um, it stuck out to Fraser because he's like, I've never seen anyone in those stores. How much money do they make and why are they paying so much for it? Mm. And it was just like this huge valuation. Um, I don't know exactly what it is top of my head, but it seemed like it was inflated like two or three times. Right. And it was a related party transaction with, uh, if I recall, Christoph Weiser, who was the chairman and majority holder of Steinhoff at the time. Um, and I think once we sort of started looking into that, we got into this web of really, really intricate, undisclosed related parties that we would just find everywhere. And just weird sort of transactions that didn't really amount to like huge sums of money uh, on their financials. But once you aggregated all of these, it was quite substantial in terms of their earnings. Mm -hmm. So when so sort of months and months into like pulling out financials from all of these really, really difficult jurisdictions, Europe, I think Bahamas, um the the US uh some in Germany um and even like a lot of these companies in South Africa uh we found that you know a big driver of sign off sales especially in South Africa was this sort of consumer financing for furniture and it looked like all of the debt from the consumer financing in South Africa was just sort of being offloaded for cash but when we got the filings to see where it was going it actually looked like steinhoff was giving a loan to someone to buy the bad debt hmm. and i don't think that there was any intention to ever repay that loan right and that in itself amounted to like a huge portion of earnings even though like it wasn't really substantial in the grand scheme of like revenue yep uh so how did you, so you went into each of these jurisdictions, you were just finding this complex web of companies, effectively shell companies or? Yeah. And there, there were a few, um, and there were a few that sort of, you know, I mean, once we started kind of poking this idea, uh, we get these anonymous emails that will come and be like, oh, um, I heard you guys were talking to someone about this. Here's what hmm. I found. And, you know, we had found one related party and there was another one that was sent to us on an email. And collectively, I don't think that that was potentially all of them because we didn't anticipate publishing our report when we did. It was just like, it, it was as it was on the date that PwC quit and Marcus Braun quit that the stock collapsed and we figured, well, shit may as well publish now because mm. i mean i'm not going to keep working on this the the thesis has played out so i i think from from our end it was still incomplete um and there still potentially could be more digging done uh, but the state of affairs now is that you know they're sort of dragging them through this regulatory process in a bunch of offices in south africa but i haven't been following it you know super closely mm. and so I, I, I think I, I looked this up before I came in, and I think it's 
the share price is down something like 90% or more. Yeah, I think it was a bit more. Yeah, right. So how big was this company? Like, what would it be akin to here in Australia? Um, I think it was like 16 billion euros, wasn't it? Right. So massive. Hmm. Yeah, I think I checked it. It was about 350 million euros, I think, now. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on the 16 billion. I think it was very, very big. Um, it would be like putting JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, and like all of our furniture retailers into like a cluster and listing it. Yeah, right. So pretty big. Yeah, right. And naturally, the fallout from this has been huge, especially in South Africa, obviously, because mm-hmm. this is a, a massive company that's. Right. And there's it, a lot of like pension cash invested in it as well. Mm. And banks, international banks that were invested. Banks. Um, and it wasn't... Th- there was one sell-side analyst only that was putting out, I think, negative notes on this company. Okay. F- from memory. And they were so poorly received, even though they were factually right. And it wasn't, like, super difficult to do the proper due diligence on this. It was time consuming, but uh, even like inspecting the quality of earnings is like an easy thing to do. So the quality of like the cash that's coming in um, and the quality of you know, your customers, especially when you're giving out like unsecured debt for people to buy your stuff. Uh, that's like a really easy you know, risk adjustment. Was that disclosed in the statements? I mean, yeah, they they had a they had a breakdown of you know how much of their loan book went out as, as unsecured debt, right. um, but this guy turned out to be right, and I don't, and all of these buy side analysts who had been you know continuously like yeah this is a great company, blah blah, blah. Um, that's fine. It, it's they they did they did their research. It wasn't you know factually right, but they. The regulatory process that we sort of endured in South Africa on our, our piece um, was pretty crazy considering that, you know, everyone kind of dislikes short sellers or people that write negative reports when in reality, if we treated um, buy reports with the same scrutiny, uh, I think that'd be a very, very different outcome in terms of like how people perceive investment research. For sure. I mean, everyone's happy to keep the the wagon rolling until right, right, right. Like, they're employed, they're making money, and exactly, no one likes to lose money, right? No, and that's yeah. I think you have to kind of get the emotion out of that and just mm. actually look at this thing fundamentally. Like, what does this business do? It seems like talking to you now. It's it, it seems like you you remember it. It was a big event, obviously, mm-hmm. but there, it sounds like there have been quite a few since then. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I wanted to touch on with you is you've, you, having, a look, having a look at the, the Viceroy website and then all of the reports that have been issued, you seem to go across geographies, industries, thematics. It's just pretty much everything you seem to cover. You mentioned mining before. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Quintus, which was that sandalwood producer. How do these ideas come to you? Um. Uh, it sounds really dumb, but I think when we start looking at ideas, it's mostly it's too good to be true. Okay. But we don't actively go out looking for short investments. We don't actively go out looking for crappy companies. Um, 
I think when you like our process is the same whether we go long or short, and we have long positions, we just don't think it's worth publishing, you know. Mm. Um, but the the process is really really exactly the same, um, and when we start looking at things like I don't know if it was Quintus or Steinhoff, um, it was more like okay, this business seems that they're promising so much um but i don't see it like this is not reflected in cash and once you look at okay we're going we're promising i mean this was managed investment schemes generally right like Mm -hmm. i don't think there's any managed investment schemes that are still running especially forestry ones uh so when someone says okay you know you can buy a plot of land um, and we're going to put trees on it and in 15 years these trees are going to be worth a lot of money and then you're going to get a commission from the sale Mm. as an alternative of raising capital from shareholders uh you really want to be sure that this is like a commodity that you can price like very accurately in 15 years because if it's worth garbage Mm. you're not going to get paid right you're paying these guys to put trees there but like things like sandalwood it's not really there's no sort of you can't go on cap iq and type in price of sandalwood <laughs> and expect you know this very very detailed graph of like massive volumes of of sandalwood being sold and being very very documented um so that was you know that's one of the really really hard parts of doing that kind of work is you actually have to go find someone that's willing to buy sandalwood which is not that many people um and someone that's and, and p- putting it up against someone that's you know multiple multiple times supplying the global mm. volume of sandalwood mm. and expecting the price to be the same. That seems like such a simple thing to do, right? To find the disconnect between yeah expectations well, in and hindsight, reality, yeah, right? Yeah, in hindsight, right? But that's that's always been the issue, right? Like in hindsight, this is very obvious. It's always that, right? And, and in hindsight, Enron was very obviously a fraud. Yeah. Right. But I suppose th- the challenge for you is not finding the worst companies and, and shorting them because there are, everyone already knows that they're the worst companies. It's finding that change, right? The right. change from that expectation to the reality. Right. Do you, can you draw on any other examples, even recent ones, with companies that you've researched or come across that might fit that bill? I think we did a report on... A company called Prosiebensat, which is a German free-to-air um, sort of TV network, mm. and they did this thing where they would—they essentially started building a portfolio of e-commerce businesses because of this widely publicized uh, case that you know free-to-air TV is dead mm-hmm. within you know, a period of time because yeah. no one watches it. Like I watch Netflix. Yeah, me too. Exactly. Um, and in sort of an attempt to branch out from their pure play free-to-wear business, they built this e-commerce and startup sort of venture on the site, which actually grew substantially on its books. And the way they did that was offering... Uh, advertisements on their network 
for equity and as opposed to cash because a lot right. of these startups like don't really have the money to it was, it was a pretty smart idea right like a lot of these businesses don't have cash to do the advertising themselves so we'll give you equity but we want airtime yeah um and it created an issue where it was i think from our understanding it was very difficult to price this because the price was wasn't really based on you know um, how much this business was, was actually worth, in our opinion. I think what we found was that, you know, if you put them in a really expensive time slot and you get 10% of the equity, and let's say that time slot is worth $10 million, you've got a $100 million business. Mm. Whereas realistically, that's totally subjective which time slot you give them. For sure. And if you control it. Right. Network. And then once you start, and there were hundreds of these. So when we started going through like all these little businesses in that portfolio and we found heaps that were in liquidation, like that were bankrupt, um, some of them that like didn't really exist in substance, among some other ones, which actually were fine. You know, like I think they own eHarmony or a bit of eHarmony or something like that. Right. Um, I mean, once you start going through those, you can see like the value is not really there for a lot of these like small time businesses. And while this was happening, the TV business was still deteriorating. So we put out a report and said, you can't pin the hopes of this business on this sort of venture capital mm. portfolio that they're starting because the quality of the businesses that are coming through here don't seem that great. And it seems to be like a very subjective valuation where they're just put, giving them time slots to like create this arbitrary book value. And then if your time slots increase the next year or the next time you get more equity from them, you earn a profit like on on the books right? it's not cash because it's never going to come through as cash mm. um, unless you sell the business because they don't generate cash generally it's it seems like with this business and you very brought Steinhoff and Quintus with the sandalwood it sounds like these businesses if you were to use a finance jargon you've got some off balance sheet risk or there's asset risk that is you know, right. there's hidden liabilities yeah matched with expectations so i wonder if you could look at this qu quantitatively and over your time doing this mm -hmm. since the early days of ferry hogson are there some i don't know some commonalities or some heuristics that you use now to, to speed up the process and understand the businesses yeah because i'm thinking like um inflated asset values mm -hmm. low cash conversion yeah etc um okay so like the biggest thing i think for us is if you have good earnings and they don't translate to cash, then there's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, if your dividends are supported by debt or equity raises, it's probably a big problem. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what we kind of go through when we look at quality of earnings. So, I mean, from our, for our perspective, if we want to go for a long, we don't look for businesses that are, I mean, especially if you want to look for a very, very stable long, like a company that's growing well. It's making good earnings on the product that's already selling. Um, you can see the cash actually coming through and they're raising debt to fund expansion. And the expansion is sort of, there's, there's a tangible value that's being created, you know, on earnings year on year. Mm -hmm. But when it starts getting to things like, and this is like why I think REITs are really difficult to price mm -hmm. uh, is because you, they're raising a lot of debt um, they're raising a lot of or equity 
And a lot of the profits come from upward revaluation of property. So there's not really any cash coming in besides maybe like rent, mm. but it's so minimal on your bottom line compared to the value of the properties that once you kind of start steam, like snowballing debt and backing it against these values, it's just very, very difficult to Mm. realistically say like oh yeah like every single rate in australia can sell their properties for this much if they needed to mm. um but i'll leave that for someone that's better at adding property than me <laughs> i'm not that good if uh if you were to think about it today mm-hmm. how much would would you be net short like would you have more of your exposure short than long um i don't know i think for us is like we, we just we like to be short for events Okay. Um, so, and this is like, this is that big Tesla question. And you, uh, do you know Mark Cahodes or do you know of Mark Cahodes? No, of, yeah. Yeah. So he's always saying like, you know, this Jaguar on the tree thing. It's like, you don't want to go in for the fight. You just want to wait until this Jaguar has fallen off the tree so you can go in for the kill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always been the case. And he's attributed this to like Tesla, right? And Tesla is super controversial. Yeah. Um, on one side, you have, these guys on Twitter relentlessly going after this company with really, really good data to support them. And, you know, that you have a CEO that's, he's eccentric to say the least. Um, and, you know, over promises, gets in trouble with the SEC all the time, calls guys pedos and all this other crap. And the, the, always is promoting something new with Tesla and there's this sort of entrepreneurial like mindset where like I'm going to start a new project before I finish my first one kind of thing mm-hmm. and it keeps going and and it creates it created this cult really mm. where there's so many people that love Elon Musk and love Tesla and they own a car and even when the car is like garbage they will still, you know, complain. Like the, if you look at complaints on Tesla, it's great because it's like, it always starts like, hi, Elon, love Tesla and love your work. But uh, my car won't start. Uh, the boot's leaking water. Um, you know, I get a flat tire every three months, whatever. And the service center hasn't responded to any of my queries for two months. Can you please help? And it's so obscure. Like if I bought a $35,000 car, like US dollar car, I'd be pissed off if my trunk was leaking and like no one responded to my service requests and it's not like you can take it to any shop, right? Like mm. you, you can't, it's a Tesla. It's their own thing. They have to do it themselves. Kind of. So it's like owning a Mac. You just have to take it to a genius, but the geniuses are there. Whereas Tesla, they don't really have, I'm sure there's some geniuses, but they're not, they're not going to fix a car really quick. <laughs> okay. And so, and then that's the, yeah. So that's really, that's like what's really hard. Cause you have such like a huge cultist community that love this guy so why would you want to like go short right now mm. and, and it's, it's working for them like the short's been pretty good over the last year i think it's down from what, like 300 and something to 230 now or something mm. like that. yeah i mean the short's great and the the short argument in my opinion is flawless but you, you fighting have, the, the fight is not really worth it for us for the, yeah the way i've looked yeah. the way i look at short selling is you have to have your thesis. Mm-hmm. So you have to be right about the company, but you also have to be right about the timing. So there has to be a catalyst, like you said. Right. And 
you have to be aware that who's on that mm-hmm. shareholder registry or you know the liquidity in the market. It might not be as straightforward as this is a dodgy company. I've exposed it now. Fall. Yeah. It might actually stay there for a long time, and in that time, right. Exactly. Know, it's not working out for you as a short seller. And there's also times like I was listening to uh, the Jolly Swagman podcast with uh, John Hampton mm-hmm. uh, the other day, and John was like, "Do you know the you know Briex? No. This is mine in I don't know Southeast Asia somewhere. Yeah, right. Um." And it was a huge gold mine. It, had to, it was going to be the biggest gold mine in the world. And we based a lot of our, one of our thesis on one of our mines on this company. And the geological sampling was done because like one of the executives went out, bought like gold from like these guys panning for Golden River and literally sprinkled it <laughs> over their sample size. And once that was sort of blown apart, right? Because actually like one of their geographical um the feasibility guys came in it was strathcona and they did the same thing in this other company in canada they came in and said the gold doesn't exist and the stock dropped 90 percent of the day and you know john was saying yeah the easiest money you could have made on that stock wasn't like writing this thing up until strathcona told everyone that you know brix doesn't have any gold it was probably right after the 90 percent drop because there's still no gold and it's still worth like three point something billion dollars Hmm. so I don't know I don't think you know it's not a lost missed opportunity after it's already fallen 90% because he's still it's still going to go another 100 right? mm. yeah of course it can right so that's interesting so I could because I've heard of some really good short sellers obviously it's a pretty tight community uh, there's not too many high profile short sellers in the country and I've heard of other short sellers not jumping on the bandwagon but you get the idea that they know that someone else has taken this position mm-hmm. read the report and they've gone oh okay effectively almost like um that's the part of the that's a big part of the due due diligence if you like Mm -hmm. let's just take a small position is that something like do you guys have have like a community that you talk to or really it's actually like of no benefit to short sellers to share any of their ideas Mm. despite the fact that like everyone thinks we're in some sort of cabal (laughs) um or or a wolf pack that gets thrown around a lot and i think i had hit squad hit squad uh, yeah, yeah i got hit squad um the, and the reason is, like, if we go around and tell all of our buddies that we're going to go short a company, every single person is going to put in a short position. Mm. Uh, and the borrow will get extremely expensive before we're in position. And it essentially, like, financially for us, it makes no sense. It's not in anyone's interest, actually. Like, it's not in... I mean, if if, if the borrow is, like, at 50% and the stock tanks before we've even published our report it's more likely than not that there'll be like a, some sort of short squeeze mm. right because everyone's going to try exit the position so no like no we don't we talk about our ideas after the fact sure um but we do that with a lot of people not just the other mm. active shorts but yeah it's sort of it's a weird environment like we, i went to like a dinner with a bunch of other like activist shorts and like everyone's sort of really quiet <laughs> and just look at each other and everyone's like, oh, what are you working on? I was like, oh, you know, just this weird company. Stocks. Stocks, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you, do you think, uh, you just mentioned, like, the, the perception from the outside is probably that, you know, the, the short selling side of investing is the Wild West. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I imagine you'd have some sort of rebuttal for that in terms of being, improving efficiency in the market or something like that. I think so. I mean, 
it's not like some holy than now kind of you know quest but i think it's just more that it's the adrenaline you get from figuring out something that no one else has figured out is great um and when there's like you know bad people doing bad things as corny as it may sound it's good to sort of create i mean you're not really creating narrative you're just explaining to people that this is happening so that you know hopefully the market can correct itself mm. and i mean we've done that with my medics right i mean it was it's a bit of a strange company but the amount of crazy things that these guys were were doing that we think was totally like below the belt can you explain the business and the thesis um i think at its core uh the thesis was i mean really we really picked up on it because i started going after a bunch of whistleblowers as in former employees former employees yeah um and we don't think that's right because if they're whistleblowers and they're trying to, even if there's, they have a perception of wrongdoing, uh, it should still be addressed and you shouldn't really go out and sue them for defamation and libel. Mm. Um, the main crux of the thesis is that there is this product for diabetic uh, leg wounds and another sort of amnio, amniotic fluid injection you can get for pretty much apparently anything right. um, including hair loss and like i don't know they, they literally inject it anywhere by the sounds of it um, and they there's very tenuous you know in our opinion tenuous um clinical trials that have been conducted on this and we found instances where there were employee-owned distributorships and physician-owned distributorships which creates an environment that's hefty with kickbacks. And I think it's unfair to say that my medics is the only person, you know, that only company that's doing kickbacks in the US. I think that the US healthcare system is like insane. Because if you hire salespeople to sell crap to doctors, you're never gonna like get into this environment of self-interest where people would like, I'll sell your product, but I want mm. what's in it for me kind of thing. And then you get like those crazy dinners when like i think stuff happens in movies like they take you to a strip club or something i'm not sure how it works but it, the the whole idea of it is backwards i should just mm -hmm. use the product that works right yeah. um and we got a lot of backlash uh from the company it was just i mean we put out 20 something reports i think if i was to explain the thesis we'd be here for hours Okay. But there's a summary that we put up that's worth reading. I can act, I'll, I'll shoot you the link if you want to put yeah. it up on your website later. But that was one of like the most long-winded um, like piece of analysis we've ever done. It, right. it, went, it dragged on for like a year, I think, since, hmm. since we were at the first to the last piece. Right. So maybe if I, I can summarize, basically this, this therapy doesn't work. Well, it depends who you ask. Like, I can't say it doesn't work, but I can say that the clinical trials are very inconclusive. Okay. And that's not just my opinion, but if you look at when these guys try to branch out to the UK and the UK independently 
it has like a review of all the clinical studies that the company's done before they approve it in the market. And these guys basically came up and said, there's no independent clinical studies. Also, they were, but they were scrapped. Hmm. Um, why did that happen? So yeah, it's, it's weird. And, and there's, there's pictures flying around and the company had a, up on its website that they've had zero adverse effects to any of these products before, which appears to be a lie because when you go on Twitter, you can see pictures of people with like huge, like wounds that have been like infected or worse because, you know, it just, something wasn't sterile or the thing doesn't work, but to come out and say that there's no adverse effects is a bit shady. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and, and there's, F, there's, there's so much, there's FDA reports that like the facilities weren't sterile. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes for yeah. those who are intrigued by this. Uh, so what would you say to people who think that maybe releasing the reports, you know, maybe the, if they would say the you releasing reports is hugely conflicted or creates some sort of ethical question about why mm-hmm. you're doing it. Do you ever get that? Yeah. I don't think that it's any different from um, Goldman releasing a report on a company that all their clients heavily invested in and saying it's a massive long. Mm. That's fair enough. Yeah. That's probably the, the rebuttal that I hear most to that point. And yeah. I, th- I, th- I think, yeah, I think it, there is an argument to be had there for efficiency and all the rest of it. And like you said, there's often conflicts with buy side reports. Right. And, and for us, it's not, I, I think there was this sort of false narrative that when we were anonymous, we were unaccountable to regulators. Mm. Um, but the reality is that we, we lodged our reports with every single whistleblower channel with the regulators, with all of our details prior to publishing any report. Huh. we did when we were anonymous hmm. so they had a very good idea of who we were hmm. um okay we're, we're and good. part of that is because the u.s has a great whistleblower reward program <laughs> right. but also part of it is because like th- there's something happening here and they should be aware about it when you say whistleblower reward program what do you mean um so if you're a whistleblower in the united states you're afforded whistleblower protection um which basically means like they'll investigate the case and you'll be anonymous whatever whatever uh, if they can then prosecute the company mm-hmm. um, for damages or a fine, uh, the whistleblower is entitled to a percentage of that fine. Right. So, And some of them have been huge, like in the tens of millions of dollars some whistleblowers have gotten for lodging a claim. Wow. Uh, but the, the, the kicker is, I mean, if they do go to trial and need testimony, then you obviously can't remain anonymous, but, you know, for 10 million bucks laughing yeah <laughs> so that that brings up an interesting point which is yeah. the differences between here in australia and elsewhere how does that can you explain for people that don't know how maybe some of what your understanding of the defamation laws and, and different um i suppose oversight that we face here in australia the um, yeah i think for, pu- that, for publication it's really difficult because yeah. we don't have anti-slap yeah that's what i was looking for um so in the u.s we always publish from the US every time we do stuff. Uh, and that's just because in the US, uh, you're essentially not allowed to sue someone to bankrupt them. So you'd have to go to the court and the court has to basically approve your case. 
they have to you have to basically prove that you have a winnable case before you take someone to a jury trial. Right. So if I was to release a report here in Australia, someone could sue me until the nth degree, and I'm bankrupt. So I yeah, can't defend. it's almost innocent until bankrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so do you physically get on a plane and go over to the States? Yep. Commute, the commute sucks. <laughs> I'm sure uh, you do other things while you're over there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> do other things. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You be, you brought up an interesting point before um, about being anonymous. We, I, uh-huh. I haven't brought that up yet. Viceroy, from my understanding, was anonymous. No one knew who you were. There was speculation. And I was surprised when it turned out that you're in my own backyard, yeah, right. effectively. Uh, can you describe the process? Of what, how and who found out who you really were? Yeah. And then how you felt when you realized that you were going to be exposed? Yeah. Um, I think it was actually Johnny Shapiro found out from the AFR. Hmm. Uh, and I, I was probably a bit of an arsehole actually when he reached out to me and said, hey, you're Viceroy. And I was like, no, I don't want to be part of whatever agenda it is that you're writing about. So I was, I was kind of a bit of a jerk actually when he found out, probably because I was terrified. Yep. Um, but the the way he found out was that there's metadata that was left in our report uh, and it had my name on it on one of them. And then if when you, you say metadata for people that don't know, it's basically like, um, I mean, it's, it's not like my name's not written on the report, but if you look at the properties of the document and like, I think it was the author of a picture or something in, in the document was, so me. you've got this picture, you've inserted it in a document, yeah, which has then been uploaded. Yeah. And, and then, then if they, you, if you scan the, like the, the back end of the document almost, yep. it's got my name on it. And then if you had searched up my name at the time, it was me, Fraser and Iden in a business together in the UK, which is public record. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fraser was, had already been known as like Zatara at this point. Right. So I think it was at that stage pretty obvious. That, Join the dots kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was terrifying because I didn't really know what to expect. And we, we got a lot of like support. Uh, I think I got like hundreds of emails that day and be like, oh, you guys do great work. Don't worry about all the crap. But yeah, there was no doubt like with all the, I guess, shit stirring that we did mm. um, that there was going to be some bad press and there was. so Because... And it was strange, right? Because, I mean, Fraser was a social worker. I was 23, mm. I think, 23 or 24. Arden was 24. So it, it was a bit surreal. And... Uh, I think that people thought we were sort of charlatans. And then it was only sort of after the fact that, you know, after sort of we kept writing up great stuff and then it's sort of kind of flipped. And now I think people are okay with two 25-year-olds, like telling them that this stock's crap. Mm-hmm. Well, let's let's put ourselves in your shoes You've written about these companies overseas, these huge mm-hmm. companies, even some close to home, and have, they've collapsed effectively. Mm-hmm. I was like, when I was doing my prep for the show, I was, I was talking to people, saying, "Like these, this is real money that people, mm-hmm. you know, they they don't care who is responsible. They just want to know yeah. because their stock has gone from a dollar to five cents. Mm-hmm. They, they want someone to be responsible. So I was thinking." That would be pretty daunting to 
to be the one that everyone is focusing on, not the actual issue, but they're focusing on you. Yeah. And then, you know, you never know who's going to come knocking on your door. Do you ever yeah. worry about yeah. that? Yeah, people have rocked up to like my parents' house. Really? Yeah. Um, we had like people trying to serve us, uh, debt collectors. Yeah, right. Um, quote unquote. Quote unquote, knocking at, you know, leaving cards and stuff in our doors. But it was, I think for like a good month, I was just a wreck. And we got sued that month as well by my medics, hmm. um, which was eventually dropped. And now we're suing them back. But at the time, it was just like so overwhelming because I had very little like recourse at what I could do. If, you know, mm. things really turned out. But it turned out fine. You- and then at that point, it was I would just stop feeling sorry for myself. I was actually just start going back to work. And it was great. And now I think that there is an inflection point where it's probably safer to be public than private. Because like if someone, some crazy did find out who it was and came after me, I think it'd be very difficult to explain to people why. <laughs> um, and I think that was, I, I think that was the issue with Fraser as well. Because after Zatara leaks happened, um, which was his previous anonymous outfit, he got stuffed in the back of a car and kidnapped. Kidnapped. Right. And I'm and told to like never write about this company again. Right. So he just wrote more, which is great. Um, so what did you? What, what that was that was weird for me as well because I thought that would happen to me when I was yeah. like public. But then I can think the more you think about it, it's like if something really did happen to me, it'd probably really bad. I mean, it's very obvious why mm. to a degree. Um, but no, it's yeah, it's a bit creepy. I think it happens to a lot of the other short sellers as well. To so, be honest. What? They get the it's a short seller treatment. It's not good. Yeah. yeah. So so did you have did you put anything in place when you knew that you were going to be exposed? Did you change addresses? Did you postal addresses? Anything like that? Like no, we, we'd already thought of that um, right. beforehand. So yeah, I mean we were we were registered to like the virtual office essentially. Yeah. Um, but it's still creepy. Mm, for sure. Yeah. Um, because and these. Companies once again, they're motivated, right? They have, mm-hmm. they'll do whatever they have, whatever means available to them, yeah. and they'll pursue them. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, but I mean, historically, it hasn't been a very good idea to sue short sellers. Um, yeah, just ask Mark Hodes. <laughs> it just never turns out well. <laughs> yeah, I suppose once you get to a certain status uh, and experience, yeah, because I mean, we don't really have anything tied. Yeah, you're you're quite happy for it to be made. Sure, yeah. yeah. Take us to discovery. It's great. We get all your files. <laughs> and uh, I, it sounds like you've had some experience with this recently. Yep. For me, that would uh, on the opposite side of the ledger. That that would be pretty. I'd be petrified to be honest. But, yeah, it's pretty daunting. Yeah, but it's it's good. I think. Um, you know, I didn't really expect it. You know, twenty something to get sued, but mm. now I'm just more comfortable. With, not comfortable with the idea. But if it happens, at least sort of, we know where we stand. You'd have to have legal teams, right? Yeah, we have a lawyer. Here in Australia, overseas? Uh, in the US. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we're registered over there. Yeah, uh, right. Well, yeah, we're registered over there. Yeah, okay. And um, as we come to the back of the, the conversation, uh, there's the, just for people that want to follow along with some of your research, where would they go? Mm-hmm. Um, best place is probably on Twitter. Yeah, you're on Twitter personally, right? I'm on Twitter personally. Um, it's Gabe underscore Bernard. I'm sure you can put up the, the yeah, link. Yeah, definitely. And Viceroy is also on Twitter. It's at Viceroy Research. Mm-hmm. 
And I think Twitter is generally like the best financial news source. Mm. Agreed. Uh, for like live stuff. And if you get a good sort of, I don't know, not overwhelming, like not overwhelmingly high number of followers, because otherwise it's just like a, your newsfeed just becomes a dump. But if you get like a, you know, 100, 200 or so good people that put up decent updates of your interest, then yeah, it's great. It's mm. all live. Um, and it was so strange because like we, when we started Vicerate, we put out stuff on Twitter just because like everyone else was doing it. And then like Mark Cahodes followed us. And I thought it was like the hottest shit ever. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was great. And then, yeah, and then I ended up going to his farm and like drinking rum punch with him. It's fun. <laughs> but it's really easy to start, um, you know, discussions with people that, that mm. are really knowledgeable about certain things. And most people are really happy to do it. So, mm. Yeah, okay, definitely cool. recommend Twitter. Yeah, cool. I'll get. Um, I'll put that link in the show notes. Uh, mate, this is the last question, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a standard one. If you could go back and tell a younger you, you're pretty young anyway. But if you could tell a younger you one thing about money, finance, or investing, oh jeez, probably don't get into short selling. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe I have a better answer for you in a few years. Okay, I think it's still early days. Yeah. Well, I'm more than happy to revisit in a few years then. Yeah. It'll be interesting it. to see where Viceroy <laughs> and yourself are in a few years. Exactly. All right, yeah. mate. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.